0: Many people have problems with art and not with reality.
1: So why is art different?
0: It's pretty simple, right? This is
1: knowledge, this is thinking, this is thought. Yeah, it does something strange with your right? head. Welcome to the Undergang Armchair. Bring it.
0: Welcome to the Undergang Armchair. My name is Ando. So it's funny, as a young artist in the early aughts, you know, the 2000s, I never really thought about institution directors, gallery owners, curators even. I knew that they existed, I had heard of such a thing, but I'd never really thought about their role in the art world. All I really thought about was art and artists, around and around. And it's, of course, super naive, but uh, on another level, it kind of made sense Art school is called art school. It's about artists. There is no educational institute for gallerists. And when you talk about art history, you're still talking about artists. So I'm a bit ashamed to say it's only recently that I've begun to think about curators, art historians, institution directors. I have, of course, worked around these people for a long time now. But for some reason, they just seem secondary to to the artistic practice to me. And obviously, people agree with me, they will to their grave, but I'm starting to reach a point where I'm seeing it a little differently. And that's why we've had a little run here for the last few months on the show of people uh, who are movers and shakers in the art world. They are not artists, but they are arguably just as important. Regardless of what you feel, you should know these people if you're interested in the art world. They do a lot. And so I have the great pleasure of introducing you to one of the good ones here. That's Mareta Jankowski. She's on the show today. She's the director of one of the coolest and most interesting exhibition spaces here in Copenhagen called Owegellen. I think she explains it herself pretty well. But for those who don't know, Owegellen is a premier place for up-and-coming and also kind of mid-career artists to show work. And it's open and free for everybody. It's a It's an exhibition hall. They have a really solid history of showing work that nobody else will and uh, have really worked up a name for themselves in that sense. I don't know anyone else here in town who does what they do, but I will let Moreta tell you about the rest. So it's application season here in Denmark, and I imagine that all you artists and uh, art people are slaving over your applications to the state just as I am so for those of you guys who aren't here in Denmark, once a year there is a deadline, an open call for uh, funding for artists. It's uh, it's not tied to any exhibition schedule. It's not tied to anything. It's just money to continue being an artist. And I'd say it's probably the biggest application of the year. I've gone ahead and applied for many years in a row now. No luck so far. But uh, you have to do it. It's part of the game here. You know, and argue all you want against the situation and uh and normalization of the arts. Writing applications is just part of it. And, uh, you know, at this point, I'd even argue they make you a better artist, strangely enough. I'll tell you this. Every year, I look back at what I wrote the year before, and I think, Jesus Christ. That's right. So these applications are due tomorrow, and they only come once a year. So get going. Yeah, well, good luck to us all. We'll hear back from them in about 12 weeks. In the meantime, enjoy my talk with Mareta Jankowski. I think I remember hearing some meowing from uh, from DF about how they felt yeah. like they got less screen time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Than yeah. other people. Yeah.
1: And also the fact that they have been complaining about that, you know, when programs have have experts called in, then they were always, you know, like they, they're they saying, so at least left-wing experts and never any experts from DF to come in and speak about immigration. <laughs> never or of their own people. Exactly. Never any right-wingers coming in to speak about refu- refugees or something like that.
0: Oh, boy. Sounds like America. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah,
0: in so many ways. Yeah. Is, is Olegelen considered a, a political or a, uh, a public institute?
1: Uh, actually, no, it's not.
0: What's the history? Actually, I don't know much about the place, to be honest. Yeah. What's the history of it?
1: It has a crazy history, actually. Awesome. Because, <laughs> because I I was when I started at Organ I was very fascinated by that there seemed to be so many sort of urban legends surrounding how organ began and how it all started. And one of the most popular urban legends was that it was started by a group of local artists in opposition to the museums and the bigger institutions and so on in nineteen eighty six. But that's actually not the case. The story was fabricated later. <laughs>
0: That was good
1: PR. <laughs> exactly, it was good PR for an institution wanting to pose as independent. Actually, it was started by two Danish fashion designers. Uh that bought the space that is now Organ as part of their sort of uh, plan to sort of gentrify uh the neighborhood where Organ is.
0: Was that rougher back then?
1: Yeah, totally. It was a very rough working-class neighborhood in the 80s, but with a lot of, you know, beautiful old buildings that they could see potential in renovating. Absolutely. So they bought a lot of these um, buildings, but they were also, they're called Erik and Margit Brandt. Unfortunately, Margit is not alive anymore, but Erik Brandt still is.
0: Is that thing, is that anything to do with bonds? Uh, the, no it,
1: no, it's just the same name okay but it okay. hasn't got they they um, but they they are still to this day they are quite famous in Denmark because they made so it's the the market the name of that's a very you know popular and famous sort of high brand fashion okay. Uh, label okay um, but they were also very interested in the arts and they were actually um, for some reason I don't even know why, but they were quite good friends with uh, Andy Warhol. And uh, visited his factory in New York and sort of tried to, you know, get up, got a bit acquainted with the scene over there. And they were quite fascinated by, by the fact that at the time there was really no institution. There was nothing sort of similar in Denmark because you had the commercial galleries and the very big established museums. But you had no sort of experimental spaces where you could cross, uh, you know, genres and, and experiment. And,
0: and this is mid-80s?
1: Yeah, 86, 86, 85, 86. And they were also very fascinated by the idea that you could have like an arts industry in an industrial building. And of course, it's something that we're so accustomed to now. But back in the days, there was no space like that in in Copenhagen. So they bought Organ, which was first it was a restaurant and then it was a publishing house for many years. And then they went to the cultural ministry and said that they would like to sort of give the building to the cultural ministry if if the cultural ministry promised to to fund uh, to give some funding for them to turn it into sort of a contemporary art institution uh, and I've been very fascinated by how or why for many years this this story was sort of eradicated and I think it I think it's not I think to be honest it's because it's not like a political, politically correct story <laughs> Danish art world that, that an institution which I think historically has been seen as very sort of radical and political and independent was actually started as part of a gentrification process. <laughs>
0: that is not popular right now. Exactly.
1: <laughs> well, it worked. It worked. Say. Yeah, it worked.
0: It's a nice neighborhood now. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: But then after a very short time, they sort of pulled pulled himself out of it and then it became an artist-run institution well how did it become so that's how it became radical yeah exactly and then it they, they pulled out of it who, and the brand yeah, the the uh, family who, okay. who owned it and then the ministry of, of cultural affairs they ran it for several years with a minimal amount of funding i still have like this wonderful inventory list in my office where it says uh, it's from 1989 i think where it says what Owegaden uh, offers the artist exhibiting there and it says like a broom a hacksaw <laughs> a microphone wow. dishes and it's like it's on that scale wow. it's, it's like completely independent and so on
0: so basically it was like alright kids you can have a,
1: a place. space yeah a DIY space go, yeah, go do you don't whatever you no money but no, you, you we pay your rent and okay. do what you want and it was like that for for many years but but you know, in order to, to skip a very long story today, it's it's quite different because we are what in, in, in Danish is called an independent institution or a eine institution, mm-hmm. which means that, you know, basically we are, one, we are, we are run like a private company, um, meaning that we do get a subsidy from the Danish state, but it only covers – it still only covers our rent. The entire sort of funding for our programming and salaries, everything we have to do, we have to raise from private foundations and private companies. Wow. So we are a bit sort of, a, I guess you could say, like a bastard in between. We get some public funding, but basically all the funding for what we do comes from private sources. And there's no
0: political input as to what you do?
1: No, only in the sense that we do make these four-year contracts with the State and Schools Fund, with Mm -hmm. the Danish Arts Foundation where we talk a bit we just had the meeting last week where we talk about which direction should organ go in and do they like what we do or don't they like it and so on but it's very with very sort of free reigns i guess you could say as long as we don't sort of you know deviate too much from from what was originally intended with organ meaning that we should be like the premier institution for young and younger artists to debut their work in a sort of to do large solo shows and only to show new work and so on.
0: Well, it's a, it's a fantastic platform yeah, for people sure. who who might lack that a uh, similar size or capability mm. to produce works of that size. Yeah. I immediately think of, uh, uh, of Maya, who was on this show, uh, who made a gym,
1: Yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah. 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 yeah.
0: Entire workout space.
1: It was amazing.
0: It was amazing, and that's (laughs) that's probably where I started being like, okay, this is really interesting. Yeah. Because this is like barely an art context in Mm -hmm. a way, at least under Mm -hmm. your average person's Mm -hmm. view. Mm -hmm. But how rad is that? And you could go work out.
1: Yeah. True. Nobody I, did, unfortunately. You know, <laughs> I,
0: I swung a couple kettleballs around, I must say. <laughs> but, people
1: were too scared. Well, <laughs> it was so weird. It
0: just that was the thing. It became such a weird thing. Yeah. But I can't imagine where else that would be possible.
1: Yeah, I'm happy to hear you say that because that's exactly the point. I, I always hope that people come to Oregon. I think this could only be realized at Oregon mm-hmm. because we are set in the world to show what somehow – you know it's difficult for other institutions to contain mm. that doesn't mean that we don't also do you know painting shows or drawing shows and so on but but at least we we sort of try to present work we we I always when when we start working with the artists I always tell them that our point of departure where we start should should be them making their dream show what would you like to do if nobody told you no and then after that, I tell them no many times. Right. Yeah, we don't mind for that. <laughs> but we always try to start out with, you know, them having no commercial pressure and not having any sort of responsibility to cater to a large, you know, broad audience ranging from kids to elderly people and so on, all of the pressures that they might experience in, in the right. same context and so on.
0: But you must have to take some consideration for audience uh, numbers. Sure we do.
1: Sure, yeah, and a lot, actually.
0: How, how is it balancing that?
1: It's, it's balancing that in the sense that we have we – have the audience profile that we have from Oregon is basically uh, – I think we've made a quite a good deal <laughs> with the data state in the sense that we only have to cater to very specific audience types, okay. meaning young, culturally interested and invested people, typically between 25 and 35, uh, students, uh, the local neighborhood and art professionals. Mm -hmm. That's sort of our niche, I guess you could say. Of course, everybody is welcome, and fortunately, I'm personally very happy about that. We're increasingly seeing more and more people who also go to, like, Louisiana or Staten's Museum for Kunst and so on. Mm -hmm. But we are not set in the world to, to, you know, cater to – we don't have any children's programming, and we don't have any sort of cafe where you can go and have a fancy dinner or anything like that. It's a sort of the bare-bones art experience somehow. Right. Um, and sometimes people are asking me like wouldn't you like to have a cafe and so on and, and no we wouldn't because it's not what it, it's not that kind of art experience we it in the world to deliver
0: it doesn't seem to fit no 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 somehow not at all and there's a cafe every you exactly. know, 22 exactly. feet <laughs> all around it yeah yeah I mean it, it's true and somehow the institution has become separated from the other ones not just in the sense that it's very unique. Mm. And and that's kind of what I really loved about it when I first moved here. The, you know, one of the first things I went to see, maybe the first thing I saw at all again was mm. the uh the book fair, the mm. self-made mm. What do you, what do you guys call it?
1: Uh it was called uh we don't have it anymore, but uh. it was called uh, I actually think we'd call it something very basic <laughs> yeah, it was a zine, it wasn't zine fair, but it was no like no no yeah 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 books, exactly yeah
0: and um, and that was great because I had not seen that anywhere else mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: and for me, one of the best things about uh, public art experiences is interaction
1: mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and that's such
0: a good uh, foundation for interaction between makers and yeah. and, and yeah. there's been a, a pretty big growth in inter- interactive experiences here in Copenhagen. Mm. But back
1: then there wasn't that money. No, and it, but but I think it's also you know it, it's it's a very tricky thing because I mean I um <laughs> I actually decided to close down this annual book uh, festival and and I liked it a lot and a lot of people had liked it a lot, but I also think that that. There are two things I think you have to be very aware of when you run a space like Organ. Once, one uh, first thing is I think you have to be very aware of when formats have somehow exhausted themselves. Mm. The book fair had been running for, for 10 years straight with the same people, for the same people. And I think exactly what you're saying there was actually what I thought the book festival lacked. It lacked an audience that was not you know, the same audience Always coming anyway.
0: Mm. There wasn't a lot of people there. I can, exactly. I can that.
1: Yeah, but uh, that's something I'm very interested in with organ. That is sort of yeah. We might do sort of shows that may seem you know avant-garde or strange or so on to to sort of many many non-art professional people. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't make an effort to sort of you know to reach out and try to get people who are non-art professionals in and, and see what we're actually doing.
0: Well, you could also say that it's perhaps a success because you guys. Did it, but now there's other people who are continuing it yeah, in their exactly. own way. Yeah, 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 so yeah. So yeah. you didn't kill off the only book fair; <laughs> you just killed off your own. You know, you decided exactly. it was time to move on. Yeah, exactly.
1: And 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 I think after ten years, I think it's 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 as you're saying, it's a great thing that other people take over, um, because it's not really in the it is not really in the genes or in the nature of an organ to do the same thing for too many years. Yeah, that would be sort of you know contrary to the profile of the space somehow. Yeah. I think.
0: How much do you have to work in order to secure your financial future if only your rent is paid? Is it a huge part of your daily job or
1: I would say honestly and I think I spend fifty percent of my time worrying about money. Yeah. <laughs> to be honest. Yeah, I mean, Not only worrying, but also working on securing funding. Yeah, it's a huge part of my job, obviously.
0: That's kind of what I figured, you know, and in a way it seems so I guess, for lack of a better word, sad, because Mm. you could do so many other cool things, but it's
1: just the reality. It's just the reality. And I also have to say that without sounding like, you know, (laughs) some kind of capitalist idealist here, I also think it's, it's it's not all bad because I actually think many of the private foundations... That cater to the arts in Denmark are a lot more progressive than the Danish state mm. is, mm. and are much more open to to sort of experimental work and and much easier to collaborate for an with for an institution than organ than the state or the municipality is. All right. So so I don't know. It's it's it's. I think we're fortunate in Denmark in that sense that not only do we have a generous state system, state funding for the arts, but we also have a huge variety of of, of private funds, meaning that if, if I have a project that I'd like funding for and the Danish state says that they don't want to fund it, well, then I have so many other people to turn to, many other institutions to turn to, and, well, chances are that one of them will like the project. Mm. So I think I, I actually very much like that it, it has changed so much because just like five, t- ten years ago, if the state didn't like your project, well... Too bad for you. Then there was nobody else to do (laughs) Then you couldn't turn anywhere else. Yeah. Um, And I have to say, we have a very good um, working relationships with many of these private foundations because actually, they they sort of, many of them medal a lot less than the Danish state medals.
0: Well, I mean, uh, (laughs) you know, a a dynamic funding situation is clearly going to be better than a one directional. Mm you know one of the one of the cornerstones of business they always say is don't have one customer exactly yeah, and yeah. and and that applies i guess for anything mm. and the honest truth is i think a lot the state plays such a large role that a lot of people just don't even ask for money elsewhere mm. it's true and and you know we are guilty of that too You know, I would like to write some applications to private funds for some money, and I haven't Mm -hmm. done it yet. Mm -hmm. You know, Mm -hmm. and so uh, you know that you have to remember that it's a changing situation. The state is slowly backing out, Mm -hmm. but there is other ways of securing funding.
1: Yeah, and I also think that was why when we were talking earlier about sort of the the state of many of the smaller independent run artist spaces, I think that's the big. Flow there somehow because there hasn't really, as far as I know, or as far as I can see, there hasn't really been any effort put into securing an ecosystem for these spaces. Because as soon as sort of public money runs out, then well, nobody knows what to do. <laughs> nope. um but yeah, I. Uh, yeah.
0: And in a sense, you can say that's that is there is some sense to a dog eat dog world in that quality floats up and hard work floats mm. up, and mm. you know. S- You know, I sound like such an American when
1: I talk about this. But, but, you
0: you know, there is something about that kind of dynamic situation, Yeah. which creates some sort of updraft, which uh, means a lot of people don't make it, but some sort of quality rises. You know, maybe it's not as diverse as you'd want, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But, uh, you know, that is the reality of it. And that, you know, if you have success finding money, Mm -hmm. you have success in, in doing your work. Yeah exactly. What it is you want to do.
1: Yeah, exactly. Also because I think that I and I don't want to idealize that system too much either. But also the fact that I think we're actually in the state in Denmark at the moment with private funding that I mean if I have to get money, which I do all the time from the Danish state for our programming, then I have to make these huge applications and you know oh God, detailing pain, and reporting yes. and so on. But with many of the private foundations, it's a matter of us sitting down and having a cup of coffee, and then I'm telling about the telling them about the project, and they're saying, "Oh well, that sounds interesting. Here's the money." I mean, yeah. it's a much more sort of I wouldn't actually say humane, but on some level, <laughs> it's,
0: well, it's, it's anti-bureaucracy, <laughs> right? exactly. Yeah, and yeah, you spend yeah. So and much sense, time dealing yeah, with bureaucracy. Exactly. Yeah. And it's more face-to-face.
1: Yeah, and more honest in a way. Yeah. Because I think it's more honest because because there's no sort of trying to hide behind a system or hide behind legislation. With many of the private foundations, um, the people who sort of made the foundations are also the ones running it. And it's a matter of personal taste for them. And somehow I can better relate to some guy, to sitting down with a guy and he's looking me in, in the eye and saying, well… I just don't like your project. Right. Then, then, then me getting a letter from the Danish state and four pages saying that according to paragraph B, we cannot give you blah 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 right. blah. blah. Right. You know, it's, it's, it's What it's, does it mean? <laughs> exactly. And and who's really responsible for right. this? You right. know,
0: nobody. That's the whole plan. Yeah, exactly. No,
1: yeah, that's the plan. Nobody's <laughs> responsible.
0: <laughs> How many exhibitions do you guys do a year?
1: Well, between nine and ten. That's a lot. Huge amount. You know, every every time when I sort of get to Christmas, I new year. I'm sitting down thinking, how on earth did, did this happen? <laughs> Is this real? <laughs> how did we do that?
0: <laughs> so does that mean you are trying to secure funding for each individual exhibition
1: time at a time? Actually, it's sort of, as I'm always saying, it's some kind of, you know, choreography, mm. I'd say, because I know, to be honest, I know which I, I have normal, normally I have sort of fair idea of how much money each, each individual exhibition will be able to raise. So I I always plan the year in that sense that I um, take in some shows where, to be honest, where I'm quite confident that they will be easy to, you know, fundraise for. And I, part of the reason why I'm doing that is because then I know that I can do some shows that nobody will fund. <laughs> it's sort of again, it's just that's like smart. a business model, you know. Yeah, sure. <laughs> it's it's a matter of you know, uh, I I I guess along with with the programming of the year, there's also the financial programming, meaning there's, okay, these two or three shows they will be able to pay for the the other shows basically. Right. So that's that's also a part of part of the planning, yeah. Because
0: that's smart.
1: Because obviously, it's. I mean. Getting somebody to to fund a uh, solo, the first solo show of a Danish conceptual artist in his or her late twenties. I mean, that's not going to happen, right?
0: <laughs> right. But something a little more uh, interesting uh, to to in their eyes profile. It's yeah, typically it's a matter
1: of doing shows with artists that are more well known or right. bigger presentations or, or something that has to do with a theme that they can recognize somehow. For instance, last year. We did a summer show, which, which dealt with sort of uh, the 100th year for the women's wo- vote right and, and so on, and and of course there is a lot of you know public interest in funding projects. It's right, like oh that looks good next yeah, exactly. to our name. yeah sounds good, right. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, what do you see as the state backs out? You know, everyone agrees that in the last ten years the state has been slowly funding less and less what do you see for the future let's just say 10 years for the financial future of an institution like oligo what's uh, what what does it look like does it rely more and more heavily on private funding or is there a third option
1: you know i <laughs> now maybe it's me sounding american but but <laughs> I, I i think it's it's so difficult to say but i think you are really I mean, you're really, you, you have a problem if you're counting on public money as your main source of income in the future. And I think that if you run an institution, no matter the size, then I think you should use these years to sort of adapt your strategies to a changing atmosphere. Because I don't think, I, th- I think the Danish public funding system is, is still so amazing in comparison with so many other places, but it's Nobody's going to put any more money into the arts. I simply simply don't believe it. So I guess organ is actually a a good case because we we get the same amount of money now that we got 12 years ago. It's not changing. And I'm sure in 10 years from now, we'll still be getting the same amount of money. And with the inflation and everything, of course, that sum of money will be covering less and less. So I think, yes, private money, private foundations will be and are already immensely important. But I'm also really interested in trying to sort of can we develop alternative economies somehow and I don't really have any sort of brand ideas how to do that but for instance with many of these smaller spaces that we talked about earlier I'm a bit puzzled by why are not more of these spaces looking into you know things like crowdfunding or, or doing something which the space that was called Emo did a few years ago where they were sort of part commercial gallery, part alternative space and so on I, I think it's I, – I can't give you any clear answer, but I definitely think that the healthy institution is the one that's adapting its business model, so to speak, these years. It's um,
0: certainly not going to stay the same. No, 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 definitely landscape.
1: not. Yeah, definitely not. And I also think it has to do with um, – it also has to do with some kind of generational change somehow because I also I, I think these – these years are rough on people who have always seen sort of the danish state as being sort of the primary source for everything but but i mean i have i'm 37 i have never known anything but to fight for money (laughs) everywhere i've worked so i guess i think it comes more natural to to my generation that's clearly a strength of artists yeah i think it comes more natural to more my generation of artists and curators and people who are in their late 40s or in their 50s yeah because i mean it it's i think it's a good help that you've never really known the climate to be any different right you've never gotten (laughs) the handouts no
0: well i mean One of my favorite quotes actually comes from a comedian who talks about to even become a comedian, you have to, you know, put in 10 years of, Mm. as he says, eating your balls. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And it's true true as an artist. You just have to eat your balls for at least. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And that's the same for anything Mm. where where you're just trying to, like, scrabble something together, which is crazy financially Mm. to make Mm. it work. And that's, you know, getting a handout from day one is just going to make you weaker. Yeah, I think Down the line. I
1: think so. At least, if you depend on it, and right. think this is this is how it'll always stay.
0: Yeah. So, where does it start for you personally? When if we look, you know, I obviously look back. You worked at the uh, uh, how do they say it in English, Fünen uh, Art Academy, yeah, as a rector there. Hmm. Um, you come from an art history background.
1: Correct? Yes, totally classic art historian.
0: Why? Why art history? <laughs>
1: I think it's a coincidence. <laughs> No, I I think it's well, um, you know. I think it all started for me, perhaps slightly different than many other art historians I know, because I'm sort of I'm I'm the first in my family to sort of even graduate high school. I come from from I've been my teenage years were spent in in a small uh, town in in Jutland, where I just you know, felt totally off and angry and pissed off and, you know, couldn't find out what I wanted to do with my life. And
0: uh, (laughs) we hear that again and again and again on this show. There's so many people who grew up in Jutland going, what the fuck?
1: Yeah. And I was a bit like, I I just, I really didn't know what I wanted to do. And I just, the only thing I knew I guess was that I didn't want to stay there. Get out. (laughs) Yeah. And actually I think my way into the arts was actually through music. Uh, In the sense that I was like a huge David Bowie fan and, you know, started listening to, uh, actually, I think my first experience or one of the the pathways into the arts for for me was, was, I remember hearing David Bowie's songs about Andy Warhol. And I was started listening to that and I thought, well, who's this guy and why is he so interesting? And I went to the local library and then I sort of, you know, picked up a book about Andy Warhol. And then I started reading about, you know, New York in the 60s and the artists and so on. So, and I think at the time I didn't think of art as a profession. I didn't think you could sort of work as an artist. But I guess for me, being 15 or 16 years old in Jutland, in, in, in it was a way out. It presented a different kind of of life.
0: Right. This is not Jutland. This is I not Jutland. This. this is
1: this is what I want to do. This sounds interesting. This, I guess, it was so attractive to me because it it represented another kind of life. You know, basically, that seemed freer and more interesting.
0: Did you want to be an artist originally?
1: No, I didn't. I didn't. I, I've always had this sort of, um, I don't know. I, I've always, I guess, you could, I guess, you could say. I considered myself more of an observer hmm. or a commentator hmm. on the arts than somebody practicing it because i always felt that so many people are doing so many fantastic things there's no need for me to contribute. <laughs>
0: there's plenty to grab onto.
1: <laughs> so that was how, i guess how it all started for me it, as a way out as a you know
0: and then you understood that there's a a, a trajectory which includes education yeah and then, exactly you know,
1: then, then I had, you know, met some people who were also into the arts and, well, I just wanted to go on studying art. And then I said, well, then I thought, well, at least if I go to university, then, you know, somebody will give me a small stipend to study it for six years. Yeah. But no, it's, it's I've, I've always been an extremely unstrategic person, so I guess I just stumbled into it.
0: <laughs> as, as most of us do. I mean, I don't think anybody <laughs> in the beginning imagines that art is a career. It appears to be something else. It appears to be outside of, yeah, the, exactly. of the mundane world we're used to. Yeah. Mom and Dad get up and go to work. Exactly. And you know, that it just appears to be completely different than yeah. that. Yeah. And and so I think it only comes later that you're like, mm-hmm. oh weird, there's this like career thing yeah. and networking. You know, then it becomes like a And Now real you job. actually
1: go up and get to work just like mom and dad. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's right.
0: That's right. And if you don't, you're gonna lose.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: Yeah, and hard work and, you know, the whole – it all comes around again. But I don't think anybody recognizes that in the beginning. Hopefully
1: not. I, at least uh, if they do, I think they make horrible artists. Yeah, and it's just a terrible
0: <laughs> career choice if you're in it for the job. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, but so you came to study here in Copenhagen?
1: Yes, I did. Yeah, that I was just,
0: 19. I imagine blew the door off of everything and you were like, finally, I'm here. I'm doing it.
1: Yeah, because it was such a, yeah, but again, in a very uncareer minded way, because it was not just, you know, was the arts and it was you know i'm gay and coming from a small town in Jutland and coming here and finally you could leave a lead a gay lifestyle and you could go to the arts and you could you i mean it was just like a and you knew all this table. earlier yes before you yes, left yeah oh man so I it can was this, the you know a, a buffet table of you know all the dishes dishes you had always dreamed of eating but could never have before yeah yeah <laughs> and but then for me i mean the arts and getting into the professional art art World. It was very sort of a friend-based thing, I guess you could say to me. Because when I started uh, studying art history, I had many friends. It was coincidentally, I had many friends who started in the art academy. Hmm. So we just, you know, did like small, stupid projects together. And, and I don't
0: think that's a coincidence. No. <laughs> oh well it wasn't planned for. <laughs> well what I mean is like you know it becomes a, a, a lifestyle in the least yeah. shitty version of that word
1: yeah exactly you know yeah. where it's
0: not you're not really thinking about where it's gonna go but you're just enjoying your life you're doing the things you want yeah. to do the things yeah, that yeah, exactly. are interesting the things you know the people you want to hang out yeah. with yeah. and then later you think oh shit I gotta pay rent yeah, exactly. at some point yeah. but you know it just comes naturally with the interest yeah true you know when you're 19 you just follow your nose hey that looks cool what's going on over there yeah you know? I want to
1: be part of that yeah, yeah
0: sure and uh yeah. you know and then things blow your mind too when you're that age things happen yeah. you know which kick open doors which had never been opened in your head
1: before. that's true and i can somehow sometimes you know i can still this might be such a cliche thing to say but i can somehow still sometimes miss that kind of you know innocence because obviously now when when i make shows i'm still i'm super interested in the arts of course but i do think about audience figures and funding and uh, how will the press angle on that be and how will it be received and I mean, and when when we were standing back in the days in some kind of, you know, shitty basement doing something, we didn't know or even think about, you know, audience or funding or money or press. But remember,
0: you did dream about having more resources. I did. (laughs) So that's the (laughs) trade-off. That is the trade-off. But I know. I mean, that's the thing. You do become uh, jaded by reality. Yeah, it's true. But there's just no – I mean, fighting that is the end. You're never going to win. No, no. So you might as well just do do the best you can.
1: Yeah, and as I've yeah, and, and, and the way I think about it, at least, is if you can just keep a mindset, which I'm trying at least to keep that mindset. You always have to remind yourself that you're doing it for the art. When you're having this uh, three-hour-long meeting with a bank for them to give you like a small amount of money, you're still doing it for the art. Right. And um, I think that's sort sort of what you have to hold on to somehow.
0: Yeah, and you must savor your victories. Yeah, true. However small they might be. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah, exactly. And sort of, you know, think that, well, it's a good thing that they spend their money on the art and not some kind of, you know, buying a big new house in Hillel or something like that.
0: Yep. (laughs) Do you, um, I I mean, I imagine the next big bridge for you was graduation. Yeah. Because then you're thrown into the real world.
1: Yeah, 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 yeah.
0: What did you, had you lost some of your naivete at that point? Were you like, oh shit, I got to deal with this now?
1: Well, uh, to be honest, it was, it, that also happened kind of, you know, haphazard. <laughs> because while I was studying, I've, I had a few jobs. I was working in a gallery and, and doing, you know, getting acquainted with the art professional world. So Anyone I, we know? Yeah, I was working at the time for the gallery called Tom mm-hmm. Um just when he was starting out. And mm-hmm. I had a great few years there and did some smaller curated projects mm-hmm. around town. So I was becoming acquainted with the professional art scene at the time but then um, before i graduated i actually got a job at the danish arts foundation <laughs> I remember they were actually i got the job before i graduated and they told me like so you can get the job if you finish your thesis in a month and i was a bit like but i can't do that do you want the job or don't you want the wow. job so it was a bit like oh guess uh, yeah and i was a bit like well, <laughs> well then i better go finish my thesis which I did, but again, it was actually I, I also stumbled on the connections that led me to that job, and it was a great job. I enjoyed it for for four years, but but again, it wasn't a planned thing. But but it it came, I guess you could say the entrance into the professional art world. It came into me haphazardly, but but rather quickly and mm. and also at a very quite young age i was i guess 27 or something so like that. well,
0: that's what i always try to tell young people who are interested in the arts mm. from any angle whether it's curation writing mm. being an artist you have to get behind the scenes yeah. and see what's going on. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, Cuz yeah. that's exactly. what's happening and it's not a big secret. Mm-mm, mm-mm. It's not hard to get a job at a gallery or no. you know, an institution and you know it won't pay well, but do it while you're young. Yeah. Get in there cuz you're going to learn so much about how everything yeah. fits together. Yeah. yeah. Like it or not. Yeah. That's the mechanism. Exactly. You know, and if you want to be part of that, get in there. Somehow.
1: And it's so different at least here in Denmark. I mean, working professionally in the arts and the art institutional world, art institutional world is so different from what you learn at school, mm-hmm. university.
0: Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Art <laughs> school. I mean, because I went to art school and they don't teach you shit about the real world.
1: Exactly. I can still remember. I have this wonderful sort of memory from when I worked at my first gallery job and I was asked to write a press release, which was a very stupid thing of them to ask me. <laughs> And I, I, I wrote this press release, and I wish I still had it, which sort of sounds like an academic paper. And right. it was a bit like, shocked there says does this, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, it's like a completely what crazy the thing to do. This? And I remember this gallery owner came to me and said, we can't send this out. And I was a bit like, why? It's, I thought it was very good.
0: This is what I learned to do. This is
1: what I learned to do. And, and he was like, but nobody's going to read this. And that was sort of, I guess, one of my. I've been hugely interested in these sort of art world mechanisms and art world language ever since. Because I think, for me at least, I guess it was twenty four at the time. It was like huge wake up call, right? Um, that well, the world outside of art school functions very differently.
0: <laughs> and academic writing is some of the most off putting. Yeah, exactly. Of all writing, yeah. You know, uh, as yeah. as a, as an art student and a person interested in the arts, I still can't read it. Mm. I will give it a shot. And when it's done well, it's amazing. Mm. But it is few and far between that it's actually worth a day yeah. as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. I'll talk till the cows come home. I can talk endlessly. <laughs> but reading those papers, it just seems so specifically, you know, it's so specific to a certain vocabulary and exactly. knowledge set, mm. which makes it basically unintelligible mm. for anybody who's not versed. Yes, in that language.
1: Exactly. And that's my, my main point. I mean, I know that so many people in the Danish art world I think are tired of hearing me always harp on on about how I think we in the arts world in Denmark are totally oblivious to something uh, something called class, social class. And the way we only speak and the way we only communicate and the way our so- all of our social codes are catered to sort of a upper white middle class mindset yeah. and 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 the fact that sometimes I I have friends and colleagues sitting down uh, you know really discussing and having a great talks about, well, how come people who are not, who haven't gone to university, how come they don't come to our museums? And if we sort of, you know, uh, make sure that it's for free, then I'm sure they they will come. Of course they won't come because they don't feel that this is for them. They They don't feel comfortable. No, they don't feel comfortable. They don't understand what you're saying. They don't understand what you're writing. And the fact that they can get into your institution for free doesn't mean anything. Um, so I think that's one of the great revolutions I'd really still like to see in the Danish art world is that we somehow start to to consider and start to be aware of that we're still a class society in so many ways and perhaps the art world particularly so.
0: Yeah. Well, don't you think that rests on the educational process? Because mm. no one comes into art talking like that. No, no. They no. leave the uh, trajectory talking like that. Mm. And, I, you know, I can do it. <laughs> you know, you, you have yeah, to learn to talk like that yeah. because it's, 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 you know, they they even call it international arts English, mm, mm-hmm. you know, and they have, you know, you can find websites where you can type you in a few English, keywords yeah. and they'll, they'll type out yeah. a, a, an artist statement for yeah, you. Exactly. And they're not that far off from the real thing. No, That's not the at crazy all. thing. Not at all. And it, so it becomes m- kind of meaningless in this weird way.
1: Well, I I think it starts... The point is, I think, it's, it starts, of course, way before art school or university. I mean, there was a huge study conducted a few few years ago about the art schools and art academies in Scandinavia. And I can't remember the exact figure, but it was something like 85 or 90 percent of young people going into Scandinavian art schools who are from an another middle class background themselves. Right. Working class kids don't go to art school in Scandinavia. Right. And that's obviously why they reproduce sort of the values and the culture and so on that they, you know, that they're brought up with, obviously. Yeah. Yeah. And it's the same in, in university. I mean, most of the people I studied with had parents who were, you know, academics themselves. I had like a great <laughs> moment when I got into university and I was, I had no money and I thought it was, I was very impressed and very scared by being at university at all. And I was sitting there speaking to to one of my fellow students and, and we had to buy a lot of new books um <laughs> I remember saying, "Oh, it's so expensive that we have to buy all these new books." And she just looked at me and says, "Well, I just borrow my mom's." And and I've never forgotten that because yeah. of course she said it in the best possible way, but that really made it clear to me, well, that's a key difference between me and you. Yeah. Because that's your foundation. Exactly. I mean, I have a mother who doesn't read English. It's mm. it's that sort of a Dan- <laughs> right. <laughs> Quite a different Right. <laughs> and and it's it's all good, but but I think that that we should have a larger awareness of what these things mean for how we constitute the art world. I absolutely agree, especially artists and art institutions wanting to engage you know with, art, with social issues and political issues right. and so on
0: right and it's you're we're in danger of making ourselves irrelevant exactly on any sort of um, what do you want to say societal scale
1: yeah. And I think the question is: I don't want to sound, you know, it's like some kind of, you know, doomsday prophecy here. But but the question is whether we aren't already irrelevant, or to at most least, uh, yeah, to most are. people we are. And you can see it on a political level. And and I think if we want to, to to become more politically relevant, it's absolutely crucial that we somehow break this bubble. Hmm. I guess to hmm. to to people outside of our own world, instead of complaining about why they don't understand us.
0: Do you have any? ideas about how to go about this?
1: Well, I think one thing it's it's a huge complex question, but I think language really makes a huge difference. I mean, don't as we were talking about before. I think we should not be afraid to, you know, express ourselves in our mediation material, uh, in our, on our social platforms when we do guided tours whatever in a language that is as free of academia uh, <laughs> as, as it can be. And mm-hmm. I don't mean to, to in a way, in, in any way to sort of, you know, dumb things down, but but I really think we have an immense task ahead of us trying to, you know, speak another kind of language, a language that, that does not, you know, um, mean that you need to have attended art school for five years to even feel that you have an idea of what people are talking about.
0: Right, some sort of inclusive exactly. language.
1: Exactly. I think that's one of the few keys, obviously.
0: Well, and it's not even dumbing it down because all you're doing, it's actually, in my mind, in a way, harder.
1: Mm, it's so to, much harder.
0: To, to try to talk to an even spread of people about ideas which clearly are meaningful.
1: Exactly. I was the other day, I mean, I was writing a press text for uh, the Danish magazine called Your Woman, mm. which is like. Oh boy. Something entirely different. <laughs> and it's so much more difficult for me to write about Søren T. Funder's show at organ for Woman than it would be for an academic paper. Right. Because it, you, you have to somehow, as we were saying, not dumb it down, but make it relevant for an entirely different audience. And I think therein lies a great challenge. Mm. Because I really believe that most people, you can get most people interested in most things if you just don't make them feel stupid. And I think that's sort of, that's sort of key here. Mm. I, I don't ever want people to come into Oregon and think that that they're too stupid to be there. I guess it's 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 totally cool and fine that you don't understand everything, but you shouldn't have the notion that that you have a problem or you are a problem if you don't understand right, everything. Right, and it's not for you. Exactly.
0: Yeah. Well, I will say uh, you guys do a good job of that. Thank you. <laughs> and I think I think that's important uh, because. You know, my only hope is that when I talk to younger people now, they do seem to be pretty aware of this. Mm. There is some sort of kickback happening Mm. against Mm. this kind Mm. of discussion. But, you know, the old interests are still very powerful. Mm. So it'll, of course, be a process. Mm. And you could say art is becoming more democratized in a way. Mm. There is a a greater interest from all areas Mm. in art. Um, There are probably more artists now, at least visibly, than yeah. there ever have been before. Yeah. Uh, people seem to feel like it's an option in life to do this. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm. Funding, uh, private funding seems to be, I don't know if it's on the rise, but it seems to be become more popular. Definitely. You know, so yeah. it is becoming normalized ever yeah. so slowly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, when did, so you realized this around when you were 24, when, when Tom Christopherson told you that
1: yeah I think it Or well, the
0: start of it then.
1: in a way i guess i had i guess you could say it now this sounds like really melodramatic but i guess you could I had always felt the sense of being an outsider because of you know these kind of class issues I was speaking about before. I always felt that I wasn't a natural in the art world, so to speak.
0: It's a powerful feeling actually
1: yeah um, but then when I started working professionally in the art world, I started seeing among other things, um, with the issue, with this sort of press press release, I could see these feelings I had articulated. I could sort of pinpoint them more and say, oh, it's a question of language. Oh, it's a question of money. Oh, it's a question of not having parents who are acquainted with uh, the head of that museum so you can't get a student job easily or so on. It was sort of, I guess you could say, yeah, more of an articulation of feeling I've had for many years but hadn't been able to pinpoint.
0: Right, finding a location. Yeah, exactly. Well, what happened when you yourself started working at the uh, art school?
1: Um, do you mean it happened with... Uh...
0: Yeah, what I mean is, is is, you know, obviously this is something you've been thinking about as you go along. You worked at the art fund, mm. uh, the, the state's art fund, and then you went over to a different kind of public institution, which had to do with molding Mm. uh, Mm. young artists. Mm. Were you thinking about it in that position as well?
1: Very much so, on on, on different levels. First and foremost, of course, with the students. um, The huge, obviously, I could see, you you know, that these children or these young people, they come with, yeah, obviously the the young people, come with such, you know... It was so readily apparent to see who was pref- prepared to enter an art theory class and feel, you know, completely at home, and who had and who had absolutely no idea of what they were doing there. Mm. And I think I tried to sort of, you know, I wouldn't say I tried to create a school where theory wasn't important, but I think I tried to create a school where theory was definitely less important than it happened, in the sense that. Uh, school that could you know equally recognize and and sort of you know cater to students that were super academic and super interested in language and reading and art theory and so on but also the you know the students that were dyslexic and uh, were just you know great at working with their hands and had a very sort of instinctual non I wouldn't say non-intellectual because I think most uh, many people, I've, most brilliant people I've met in my life, many of them have been non, non-academic. non But but I think a school that could somehow both encompass people with, you know, huge academic skills and, 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 I don't know, it sounds romantic, but but artists who worked, you know, came from a different place. I guess you could say that. Um, but one thing that was also very important for me was that the Funard Academy obviously is located in Odense. Which does not have any contemporary art scene at all. There's the Brands Museum, but it's sort of an institution in itself, and it's create now it creates these large, you know, just large scale, very, you know, popular shows. There was no uh, contemporary art scene, which meant that there was also very little political, political understanding for what the work that we did at the academy.
0: Well, not only that, but it's shit on as a provincial city. It's totally considered yeah. less
1: exactly. Good exactly and there was there was much less funding from the danish state mm, I bet. much 40 times less, less actually than wow. the academy in copenhagen but also just within the city i mean but just working in copenhagen with contemporary arts i'd say that in itself is a privilege compared to working with contemporary arts in the rest of denmark because i mean To be honest, I mean, when we do something at Orgel and even if we just put a small notice on Facebook, some people will come. Some people will find it interesting and nobody will question whatever we do. Working in Odensil is so different because you have, I mean, you have a city council that controls most of the uh, academy's uh, funding and most of these people don't like contemporary art. So it's a completely different I mean, you and I can sit down together and, and and we can maybe disagree whether this piece of work is a good piece of work or isn't. But we wouldn't disagree on whether contemporary art is any good. It's
0: like, no, nope, it's all bad. Exactly. None of this. None of this.
1: Exactly. And that's where it starts in winter. That's, that's. I, I learned oh, wow. so much these years working there because it was, you know, attending meeting with the local companies and politicians – you know, asking me questions like, "So why shouldn't why should we give the academy money when we think that the the cancer wing for children in the hospital needs money?" I mean, those were sort of the dilemmas. That it is it's a very different thing working in, in outside of Copenhagen. You're like, of hey, Europe. why don't
0: you fund them both, you assholes? Exactly. <laughs>
1: but I mean, nobody here in, in Copenhagen would ask me um, why should we give organ money and not you know right. cancer children. I right. mean, it's right. This
0: is not the context we're trying to work in.
1: Exactly. So I think I I, I, I worked a lot with it how we set up the programming at the school in mean, different ways. Also by emphasizing that instead of, you know, going on exchange years to other academies and art schools, then you could go on internships with actual artists hmm. to work with them and get a as you said before, a feel of the professional art world. But yeah. But also it was it was a great learning experience. Uh, also to work in a city that at the time, at least, definitely didn't like contemporary art very much. Very different from here.
0: Did you come from there to again then?
1: Yes, I did.
0: Yes. So how did that happen? What was the process of ending up?
1: Well, I was extremely happy being at the Academy. I really liked it a lot. But to be honest, I was it was very draining to commute because I live in Copenhagen. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, yeah, that's like an hour
0: and fifteen minute train. Yeah, ride each yeah, just a train ride. Right? Right? Yeah, and then no you know way.
1: the trains break down, and there's just no storm and The Danish train system goes off the rails. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and I'm married, and my partner lives and works in Copenhagen as well. Um, so actually, I I I wanted to come back to Copenhagen in that sense, for that regard. But I've always also had a very soft spot for organ. It was always ever since I started working with the arts one of the spaces where I'd like to work. Mm. So I sort of, uh, yeah, it was just a chance that it was too good for me to pass up. So
0: they published the yeah, job opening. exactly. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and I applied. Who was the director before you?
1: It was uh, Henriette Breton Meyer, who's now a curator at Uh
0: And why did she leave? Why was the job opening off?
1: It's because organ, and I really like it. Actually, organ. It's part of the sort of the rules of being a director of organ is that you can only be a director for six years.
0: Oh, that's interesting.
1: Yeah. So, so Henriette's time was up, simply.
0: Okay.
1: Uh, and I only have six years as a as program and director of Organ as well. And I think it's really great because as a director, you have such great freedom to do what you want. And basically you can do whatever, <laughs> whatever you want. But that also means that after six years, then another person can come in and change everything. That's smart. Yeah, I think it's super smart because that's also, I think, in keeping with Organ's nature that mm. you can do whatever you want, basically for six years, but after six years you're kicked out. Someone and else the, gets a shot. Exactly, yeah.
0: And so you've been what four years now
1: three years
0: three years yeah halfway through how yeah. do you how do you think it's going three years in
1: well I think it's obviously i i I love it a lot i I think it's fantastic but but obviously um and I guess it's it's the same for everyone and for every job in the sense that you have to make it your own somehow hmm. obviously you start out with a lot of your predecessors programming and you know how everything's done and so on um but I really like it now because I think it's, it's, it's working. <laughs> Not that it didn't work before, but now I think the programming is set up and, and all of the ideas that I sort of came to organ with, most of them have been set into motion and we have secured the funding we need and so on. So I think that finally it's sort of these years my last 3 years now i can finally concentrate on the most exciting stuff mm. which is of course making exhibitions and programming and not worrying too much about funding or whether the roof will fall off the building or you know all of those more boring director issues you mm. also have to deal with
0: sure yeah. are you uh, are you remembering to have fun
1: ah that's a good question <laughs> i don't know i mean it's 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 i have this kind of I I think it's, sometimes people ask me, oh, don't you miss having more time to curate? Or don't you miss having more time to write? But I guess I I have a certain mindset. Um, Maybe, I don't know, maybe I was a janitor in a past life or something (laughs) like that. Because I really love that my job is to make everything work. I mean... I speak with my, my curator every day. I speak with the artist every day. I speak with my press person every day. And I like the fact that, that you sort of – you have the back of the institution somehow. Right. And, and it's not about, you know, wanting to, to decide everything. It's about, you know, knowing that you do your job so, body, so that everyone else can do their job. Right.
0: Like you said earlier, in yeah. service of art.
1: Exactly. And I think that, that's amazing. It's it's not, you know, securing the funding itself. It's seeing that uh, Naya makes a gym of the funding right. in the building. Right. And uh, I don't know if fun is the word, but… but <laughs> <laughs> Satisfaction. Gratification, satisfaction, I guess you could say. But I also definitely have a lot of fun.
0: Well, I mean, it's one of those things I try to think about a lot too because I'm reaching an age at which, uh, you know, it becomes the grind becomes a little hard sometimes. And you mm. have to remember to recontextualize it every once in a while and say, okay, I did this because I find it interesting and fun. And yeah, uh, it's really hard. It's really, really hard. But if it's not fun anymore, then there's no point in doing it, right? I mean, the whole mm. point was to live a life like when we were 19, exactly. where you just yeah, follow yeah. your nose yeah, and yeah, you're, yeah. you're you're doing whatever is interesting, mm. and and it's it's kind of easy, you know, as you go into your 30s to mm. to to lose that mm. in your in the in the grind just to stay alive, to keep your head above water, and to keep going.
1: It's true, but but I think for me, it's it's what's very important for me is to sort of keep the feeling that I'm doing what makes the most sense to me to do. I mean, I don't have a career plan. I've never had a career plan. And I always become very skeptical when I meet people our age saying, oh, and after this job, I'd like to do this and I'd like to do that. I've always only pursued jobs and projects that I thought sounded fun. Mm. And and organ sounded fun to me and still sounds fun to me. But I, th- I guess I just mainly I think of my... Honestly, I think of my myself as a person of immense privilege because, I mean, to be honest, I'm the director of an institution where I have sort of this crazy ability to say, now I think we should do this just because I say so. I mean, that's... <laughs> that's <laughs> that is I pretty think, big, right? <laughs> yeah. You know, it's you have to remember that in the self is so privileged that I think you should be ashamed not to, to, yeah. to, to value that.
0: Yeah. Um, do you, I mean... You know, you're telling me you have no career plan, but, but do you, you know, how much does curation play a role in your job there? Or do you leave it mostly to the curators themselves?
1: Uh, the way we work at Oregon is that the programming is my responsibility. Choosing what are we to to show there, which shows, which. Do you have open
0: calls or people write applications? Yeah,
1: it's it's a mixture of both. You have we have open calls, Mm -hmm. and then people send in applications, and I choose which ones we want to work with.
0: Do you build any? Do you take any? Just because you know an artist individually and you want to have a show with them too?
1: Yes, we do a mixture. I also invite people to to, but it's a mixture uh, of it. so I basically, of course, I discuss it with my curator and, and most of our staff, but I have the responsibility for the programming that we do, Um, not only with the shows, but also what we do as far as, you know, critical studies program and lectures and so on and everything else. And then I work very closely with my my curator and about the realization of the shows. Hmm. And then after we've sort of, you know, made like a sort of a master plan saying this is what we want in this direction and so on, then is usually... Much more hands-on with the actual realization of the show than I am, mm-hmm. but but it's. I think we are a very close-knit group at at organ where I think I hope at least everybody thinks that they they sort of pitch in and contribute where they can. Um, so so I guess you could say that the, the overall responsibility is mine, but much of sort of the hands-on work with the shows is done by by an our curator.
0: How many people work
1: there? Too few. Um, <laughs> half as many. Yeah, half as many. Actually, we are what are we? Four people, yeah. and I'm the only one full time. Oh wow! Yeah,
0: yeah, I can see what you mean.
1: <laughs> and then we have you know technicians and student workers and so on. But but as I said before, it's, it's I, I don't I, I honestly don't have any idea how we pull off the programming <laughs> that we. Maybe we're gonna, all gonna die of stress in a few years. I don't know.
0: Uh, it seems pretty <laughs> common for the art world, in a way, you yeah. know? And of course, doing exciting stuff takes a lot of work.
1: It takes a lot of work. Face yeah. it,
0: face it. That's just the way it is, you know. And like that's uh, you know that's the thing about about this program. Yeah, it's the thing about being an artist. It's the thing about uh, you know anything cool takes takes a fair amount of work, and you're probably yeah. not going to get paid very well either.
1: No, 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 definitely not. I you mean, know? I I have the most amazing staff in the Danish art world, but and I wouldn't know what to do if they came to me and actually demanded money for all the hours of their yes. work, to be honest
0: right because you only you know but but the the trade-off is you get to live a life in which you're engaged with the arts at a pretty maximal level you know compared to yes. your average person yes uh, the That's idea true. of a regular job to me mm. uh, is so horrifying mm. that I will accept mm. uh a lower standard of living in exchange for doing the stuff Mm -hmm. I'm interested in. Mm -hmm. You know, and if I was interested in being a lawyer, well, I'd have,
1: you know, a house,
0: but I'm not, and I won't trade that.
1: I have a very good friend of mine who does like leadership recruiting for a major bank here in Denmark. (laughs) He's always like super concerned for me because once we were talking about my salary and and he was like, but wait, wait, that must have been some kind of mistake.
0: It's not possible. It's not possible
1: because, I mean, you, you're you a director and you have responsibility for funding and programming and people and so on. You can't get paid that <laughs> beastly amount of money because obviously when coming from the bank world, it was like, are right. you insane accepting yeah. that kind of yeah. pay for right. the work
0: you do? It's not possible.
1: <laughs> but so, yeah, I think it's, yeah. But as you're saying, I think we're very privileged to, I think we're privileged to be able to get up in the morning and actually believe in what we do. I mean, I think many people don't have that privilege.
0: And that's what I mean by having fun. Yes, exactly. That's what it is. We have to have fun (laughs) by doing this or else we got nothing. Yeah, it's true. Thank you so much for coming on the show.
1: Thank you so much for inviting me.
0: Yes, that was Mereda. Really interesting, right? By the way, if anybody does want to help out, the best thing you can do is A, tell a friend and B, go on there on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever else you find this podcast and leave a little review, put some stars on there, whatever you got to do, that'll help other people find the show tremendously and we would appreciate it. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Undergang Armchair. The intro and outro music is kindly provided by Johnny Ripper, and today's interstitial music was provided by Arcee. You can find links to their music and tons of other conversations on our open call of a website, undergang.net. The show is produced in part with the kind support of the Danish Arts Council. Thank you for joining us.